From the Daily Northwestern, this is The Weekly. I'm Molly Glick. And I'm Sam Brunitz. Welcome back, listeners, and for the new people tuning in, thank you. Thank you so much. It's week three here on campus, and the wave of overwhelming madness is just around the corner. This week, our podcast got a little historical. First, we ventured to the Northwestern archives to do some myth-busting. Then we talked to a professor about activism in the 1960s. And as always, we'll finish with Week on the Street, Homecoming Edition. But first, are there monkeys in the basement of tech for experimentation? Stay tuned. At Northwestern University, it can sometimes be hard to separate fact from fiction. I've heard a lot of campus myths, but I'm never quite sure what's true. I wanted to talk to someone who could shed some light on these lies. Um, could you just introduce yourself? So my name is Kevin Leonard. I am Northwestern's archivist. We are the memory unit of of Northwestern. So I journeyed beneath Deering to the crowded, dimly lit, and expansive Northwestern archives. Armed with myths, I had gathered via a survey to the Daily Northwestern's listserv. Kevin helped me do some myth-busting. Now I'm just going to delve into, like, the myths people sent. So I've heard this a lot, and people sent it in when we sent out the survey, like, a few things about Plex. One, that it was, like, designed by like a prison designer, and also <laughs> that it used to be the dorm for African-American students, and that it was designed to keep people from rioting. So I just wanted to, like, like what's the history of Plex and, like, its poor design? I am ignorant as to the background of the, of the architectural firm that worked on that. Had they worked on prisons, I don't think the university would have said, oh, my God, this is the firm we need. Look, they've worked on prisons. We want to replicate that for our students. At, at different points of the university's history is basically, at least in terms of housing, a segregated institutions where the university housing was provided for white students, but not for black. You can find before modern times, black students living in university housing, but not a lot. If you're a, a white kid and you show up at school and you've been assigned a black roommate and you object to that, you could request a new roommate. If you're a black kid, and you come to Northwestern and you find yourself room with a, a, a white kid and you object to that, you don't have that same opportunity. Not too long after that, Foster Walker was constructed as a living unit. It's alleged that, it's, that its population was disproportionately African-American. If that's true, and I don't have the numbers, I don't, I'm not, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but if that's true, you might theorize that, okay, this allows university housing administrators to solve some of the problems associated with roommate reshuffling. You give people singles between um, students of mixed race when those things surface, automatically disappears. That myth was busted. Sort of, but as I learned from my conversation with Kevin, most myths seem to have at least a little kernel of truth behind them. I also heard the bricks that were used to make Annie Mae Swift were supposed to go to Stanford or UCLA. And that's why they're, it's such a weird color. And they somehow ended up here. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. I have never heard that story. A lot of brick making has been done in metropolitan Chicago. And if you're going to do a, a construction project on a building that is clad in brick, it seems reasonable to me that that brick is going to come from a local source. The time anyway, Annie Mae Swift was constructed in the 1890s, Northwestern was a much smaller school. Right now, you look around Northwestern and you see there is a predominance of what beige buildings, the time Annie Mae Swift was constructed in that general time period. Northwestern had a different 
chromatic look to it at that time. So, Myth number two, busted. This next myth takes us pre-World War II. That there used to be a class on eugenics at Northwestern? There, no doubt eugenics was a component of probably many classes. Eugenics certainly post-1930s and 40s for, for obvious reasons of what happened in, in the world and took a, took a hard fall. Myth confirmed. There you have it, faithful listeners, our first accurate myth. Okay, so I heard uh, that Northwestern at one point wanted to expand farther into the lake, but the EPA wouldn't let them. When Northwestern needed land very badly and chose to expand its campus by going into the lake, the university bought from the state of Illinois lake bed. They could have gone further out. Northwestern still owns lake bed beyond the borders of the current lake fill. At the time the landfill was created here, there was no EPA. You didn't have the regulatory apparatus at the federal level. I think they would have decided differently had they known how Northwestern was going to grow. Myth busted. Like, I've heard this on tours, and someone sent it in, uh, that Pitch Perfect is based on a cappella groups at Northwestern. I don't know if you've heard of Pitch Perfect, the movie. The last time I went to a movie theater <laughs> was, was probably when everything was black and white. I guess we'll never know on this one, but we can only hope that a masterpiece such as Pitch Perfect was at least a little bit inspired by Northwestern. Someone said that there were monkeys in the basement of tech, like, for, like, experiments. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have never seen one. I don't spend a lot of time in the basement of tech. I have never seen a monkey. I've never heard a monkey. I have seen people behaving as though they were monkeys, but not the real deal. I am not aware of anyone doing that type of experimentation with monkeys at tech. Well, you heard it from Kevin the Archivist himself. There are no monkeys in the basement of tech. I repeat, there are no monkeys in the basement of tech. From the Daily Northwestern, I'm Sam Bernays. Also, quick side note, if you make an appointment at the archives, you get a free t-shirt, and you can match with me. That wasn't enough history for us this week. On Wednesday, we sent a weekly reporter, Hannah Collins, to a talk on activism in the 1960s. This Wednesday, the Block Museum hosted an event called Love and Then Some, inviting Northwestern scholars to discuss the U.S. in the 1960s, a time of protest and revolution. The speakers related their lectures to the art hanging upstairs by the British poet and artist William Blake, a name you might recognize from far before the legendary 1967 Summer of Love. One of the things that causes a lot of people to the focus on the 1960s and 70s is because, you know, there's a, a whole host of really important changes that all happen very fast, and trying to understand that is, you know, challenging and fun and interesting. That was Michael J. Allen, an associate professor of history here at Northwestern. In his speech, he related William Blake's work to divisions in the American left during the 1960s. Well, I chose to, to talk about radical left critics of the liberal establishment because I am writing a book on a similar topic. And when I looked at the William Blake stuff, it seemed pretty obvious to me the themes in his work that would be of interest to uh, student radicals in the 1960s and, and 70s, namely the 
you know, they wanted to break out of this kind of like really rigid um, technocratic society that they lived in, one that was defined by uh, liberal faculty members and liberal politicians who were almost all exclusively white, almost um, exclusively men, all highly educated, all rather elite. And Blake's work seemed to be kind of, you know, gentle repudiation of all that and an alternative to it. Alan pointed out that the politics within academia is pretty different today. Our standard understanding of, of politics in our own moment can't really explain the art uh, on display here or its purpose. Uh, and our own kind of crude right versus left reaction versus reform schema misses the important role that radical critics play in challenging the center-left statism that defined American life at mid-century. He says that the students themselves have also changed since the 1960s. One consequence of having college cost so much more is that students have become much more risk-averse. And in that sense, they've become, I think, a little bit more conservative. I don't mean politically conservative. I just mean less willing to do things that might prove consequential in their lives. And that really means that they're less likely to do things that rock the boat, that change society, because they're so busy kind of working and trying to advance their careers. For The Weekly, I'm Natalie Shalati. Thanks to Hannah Collins for reporting, Natalie Shalati for narrating, and Molly Glick for producing. Every week, in our segment, Week on the Street, we talk to you, Northwestern students, on Sheridan Road and ask you about current events. This week, our reporters Marissa Hatler and Natalie Shalati ask strangers about homecoming, high school, and garden gnomes. Stay tuned. Charlie Sanger, a freshman, and I'm undecided in McCormick. Tommy Cohen, I'm also a freshman, and I'm studying civil engineering in McCormick. So, first thing, I don't know if you guys are aware, homecoming is this week. Are you excited? What are you looking forward to? I'd definitely say the football game. I don't know many other events other than the football game, but we're going to have a good Saturday. Would you say you peaked in high school? Probably middle school. (laughs) Carefree, great friends, no responsibilities or anything like that, and just got to have fun. I felt so smart in high school. I was, like, really smart and really (laughs) proud of it, and now I'm struggling a little bit but you know who who knows we'll see i might peak in a couple years yeah what is your take on garden gnomes definitely creepy but also like necessary uh, i don't mess with garden gnomes man man victoria delera i'm a sophomore and my major is environmental science yeah. would you say you peaked in high school I want to say I've definitely had a hard time here, and it's definitely crossed my mind. (laughs) It was probably just all about the confidence, which I know I don't have enough of here because it's so hard. If I had more confidence, that wasn't my peaking. It could be here. Well, hopefully not because, (laughs) like, life still goes on. Alex, I'm a freshman, and I'm studying electrical engineering. Homecoming is coming up. Are you excited? What are you most looking forward to? I'm pretty excited, but... It's a little upsetting that there's no parade this year because of the construction, which is something that I was really looking forward to. Would you say you peaked in high school? I I don't think that anyone that's at the university here really peaked in high school, but I I don't think I peaked either. What is your take on garden gnomes? Actually, it was kind of like a meme in our German high school German class about garden gnomes. It was sort of just like a random garden gnome that would like appear in places. Like we would put it on like the old school projector and project its shadow onto the walls. So it was just always around. Yeah, it was. It made appearances. I mean, I think the teacher moved it, but like, I I can't be sure though. That's it for this week. 
Thanks to Poddington Bear and Love Letters for Music and our wonderful team at The Weekly for all the amazing journalism that they do. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, and please continue to listen. We'll see you next week.